2: In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Boll & Branch sheets get softer with every wash. They're made from the rarest organic cotton and designed to get softer over time. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee, plus 15% off your first order with code BUTTERY. So head to boll today. Exclusions apply. See site for details. Do
0: you love anime, gaming, movies, and discovering how your favorite pop culture affects everything you do? absolutely incredible
2: or anime and under this mask is another mask
0: (laughs) you can discover your new favorites right here on the anime effect listen every friday wherever you get your podcast and watch full video episodes on crunchyroll or on the crunchyroll youtube channel hey i'm ryan reynolds at mint mobile we like to do the opposite of what big wireless does they charge you a lot
1: This is Writers on Film, the only podcast dedicated to books on cinema. Hello everyone and welcome to Writers on Film. My name is John Blisdell. I'm a writer and film critic and today I'm going to be talking to Melanie Williams who is the author of a new book, a new BFI classics on the wonderful film A Taste of Honey. Melanie is a lecturer and writer at the University of East Anglia. And we uh, we talk about the film and, and matters arising. If you like the episode, remember to subscribe and like and spread it it's far and wide on social media. You can tweet as well uh, and write reviews. Please, um, yeah, please do that if you can. But before you do any of that, enjoy the conversation.
3: quite hard to trace actually I can't really remember exactly the first time I saw the film but um but I was quite a film buff as a teenager so I watched lots and lots of black and white films from from that era um, and earlier as well so I imagine it was probably among that glut of viewing that I first saw the film um, and really liked it and appreciated it um,
1: Whereabouts are you from, by the way, Melanie? I'm
3: from Bristol. So yeah, nowhere near <laughs> where the uh, where the film is set. I don't have that kind of like local connection to it. I suppose the, the closest you get to that would be a film like Some People. Have you seen Some People?
1: Some People. The name's familiar.
3: Yeah, it's a sort of it's a sort of new wave film, but in right. colour, and right. it was filmed in it was filmed in Bristol. In sort of early sixties, and it's got Ray Brooks in as this sort of disaffected young man who joins a youth club and does the Duke of Edinburgh Award scheme. Mm-hmm. But it's a it's a really it's a it's a really sweet, like intelligent film about about youth. But I think that's the closest that that whole kind of kitchen sink new wave movement got to. To coming to Bristol, otherwise, obviously, it's quite a northern and uh, with uh, and some London, you know, but always on the periphery in the southwest.
1: Yeah, yeah, Bristol's quite underserved in terms of films, unless I'm missing some sort of massive film that you're going to go. Well, what about this? And then I'll say, Oh my god, yeah, of course.
3: No, I th- I think you're right. I mean, there are there are a few, but mm. it's you know certainly not had the you know attention paid to it or the use of it as a location as. As some other places in in Britain, but it just means I suppose it's a it's a World Cup secret, cinematically speaking. Someone will do it; they'll make the great Bristolian film, whatever that might be.
1: At the same time, I sort of think that coming from coming from sort of a place which is a little bit marginal, a little bit out of the way, you have you can easily sort of see yourself in 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 films, even if they're geographically. You know, not from that same area. I mean, I'm from Barrow In which is really, although it's from the north and everything, it's so far away from all those Bradford, Bristol, Manchester places. You know, it's two and a half yeah. hours. You're probably closer to Bristol actually to Manchester than I am. You know,
3: probably. Yeah, yeah. I was talking about being peripheral, but that that knocks it into
1: a cocked hat. Doesn't it? <laughs> <laughs> well, Barrow In Furnace is the periphery of the periphery. So, when you were uh, growing up in Bristol, what was what? Uh, how did you become a film buff? What was uh, the what were the sort of films that attracted you?
3: Oh, gosh. Um, I, I used to really like old Hollywood films that were on BBC Two and um, that BBC Two's like tea time slot where you'd see all kinds of old nonsense and uh, Channel Four as well, having like a week of Edward G. Robinson films or something where, you know, I'd kind of come back from school or come back from sixth form or... Um, and, settle down and enjoy those very much so I also got quite into reading about Hollywood and and filmmaking generally so I got a lot of biographies out of the the local library and one book that I used to get out again and again was now David Shipman's uh, The Great Movie Stars which is like Mm -hmm. a multi-volume basically this big book all about different movie stars mainly focused on Hollywood I don't really know why that was so interesting to me. I really don't know. I, I did, go to, um, did go to a sort of um, educational event at the, the Watershed, which was the like, art centre cinema thing in Bristol, and they showed The Third Man, and that absolutely knocked me out. I thought this was well an amazing film fantastic to see it on the big screen and I suppose that really consolidated my love for old cinema black and white films um, but British films as well as as Hollywood films and you know and just a range of whatever I could see really and, and a broader sense of cinephilia so I was also going to see modern films as well so it wasn't just the old stuff it was that was the gateway really to being really kind of fascinated by this yeah this whole this whole world I suppose and that's that's what got me into that and then I did an English degree um and as part of that I did some additional like film options and
1: was that at Bristol the degree
3: no I went to university at Hull so I went (laughs) went to the it's side of the country? Because I was quite, a, was quite a Philip Larkin enthusiast, which is not something that you'd necessarily freely admit to anymore.
1: Oh, I love Philip Larkin. I love oh,
3: it. Yeah. And it's... yeah, it was exciting to be in the library that he was like marching around. And obviously after my, you know, I was after that time. He was uh, dead and gone by the time I went to university, but it was still it was interesting in the department. There were people that had obviously known him and worked with him and um and it was it's a yeah, it's a fantastic city. It had a very bad reputation for a very unfair reputation mm. for for a while. Yes, yeah, a fantastic place. So yeah. kind of interesting and so much rich heritage and you know, kind of literary heritage and cinematic heritage, as I found out, you know, there's practically all of 50s British cinema, you can probably trace to about three neighbourhoods in Hull, you know, you've got J. Arthur Rank, you've got Gerald Thomas, you've got Ralph Thomas, you know, Kay Kendall's off from Withensy, Ian Carmichael, you know, it's it's amazing, you know, I thought that was a really strange... Incident, interesting coincidence that you know so many people from Holland ended up defining British cinema in that period. I suppose these things happen for a reason, don't they? You end up where you're meant to end up.
1: I would never have thought of Hull as being a uh, sort of this nexus of uh, British cinema talent. But-
3: yeah, well. Surprisingly
1: so, yes. I'm really interested hearing you talk about the third man as well, because that's such an interesting crossover film, I think, because it has the American Hollywood of Orson Wells and Joseph Cotton, but it also has Trevor Howard and it has the sort of William Hart White and that sort of uh Britishness of Carol Reed, uh, who's sort of like more british than the british if uh, if you know what i mean coming from i think it was hungarian wasn't he originally the uh, as a, his family
3: oh i don't know i don't i'm not aware of his provenance
1: <laughs> yeah i think carol was uh, initially sort of a K, K, oh, yeah. K name, uh, and of course, Oliver Reed's uncle. Oh.
3: Yes, yeah. So there's another family tree there, isn't
1: there? <laughs> I mean, I must admit, Taste of Honey, for me, uh, was very recent discovery. I watched it for the first time, I think, last year. In a way, it, the thing that I, I, I'd sort of gone through quite a few of these sort of st- Kitchen sink films, so to speak, or, or the social realist films of that period—loneliness of a long-distance runner, Saturday night, mm. Sunday morning, look back in anger—I was much more familiar with and found them sort of admirable, but not particularly enjoyable. If that—if
3: mm-hmm.
1: that's not sacrilege. But when I watched *Taste of Honey*, I it not it just it struck me as so much better than all of those films.
3: Oh, that's interesting
1: yeah um, I don't know what it was. I think maybe it was because the other films had this sort of working class masculinity, hmm. which I very much recognized, but it's that but they seem to endorse. they seem to go, yeah, look at how look at how rude Albert Finney is and look at how <laughs> horrible Richard Burton is to his girlfriend. That's what you know, and it's sort almost like a middle class version of working classness or valuing the sort of a certain level of behavior a certain type of behavior as if it as because it's authentic when i come from that background and yeah there are there are elements of truth there but there are elements of other truths as well
3: i think it is it is a it is slightly anomalous you know that group of films always get talked about as a kind of you know, lumped together because they do share certain features, and they're all kind of literary or stage adaptations. There's a kind of tight, coherent time period that they belong to. Um, but it, a taste of honey is anomalous because it is the only one that really has that that kind of well, female author and a, a more of an interest in. A, a, female experience i think i mean not that the other films are completely absent of that you have got some notable characters played by the likes of rachel roberts and simone Signoret and and so on but um but a taste of funny i think is different because it sort of speaks with the female voice and is interested in the young woman's experiences and her relationship with her mother as well as her relationships with her friend jeff and her boyfriend Jimmy but you know she's determining the action and Mm. so many of the other films an unexpected and unintended pregnancy is kind of like it's about how it impacts upon the male hero and his right to to roam freely whereas this is much more about her experience and what she does and you know how she is going to live with the consequences of of this and her ambivalence towards it, you know, there's that amazing scene in the, both in play and film, where she rejects motherhood. She doesn't want to be a mother, you know, for a start, she's still quite young, but also, Mm. and this is at the height of that cult of maternity, you know, where being a mother is seen to be the kind of acme of of female achievement and that's being kind of rejected here. and coming from a, a teenage female playwright who's then adapting her own play for the screen i mean it's it's an amazing moment of a new kind of voice breaking through into the into the mainstream and that might be why one of the reasons why it felt different,
1: I suppose. Uh, Absolutely. I mean, I think those other films I watch and I'm constantly having to hedge my reactions to them in the sense of like, oh, well, in those days that was sort of considered revolutionary and those days that was considered advanced, even though it seems retro to us now. But with this film, you don't have to make any allowances for it. Um, it, it, It's totally... And I I think uh, as your book so ably demonstrates, a lot of that is actually down to... Uh, Sheila Delaney's um, authorship, um, even though she sort of, as you quite rightly says, you know, t- has a there's a tendency to minimise her contribution, and uh, in, in order to make Tony Richardson uh, the more mm-hmm. sort of, you know, the the author in 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 this case. Um, just before we go on, let's uh, just in case uh, our listeners haven't watched it as recently as i have and i'm sure you've read, obviously you're very familiar with uh, can you give us a sort of like précis of the of the film as a, a way of um helping them out
3: yeah sure so um it's set in salford uh in the northwest of england um and there's this very sort of distinctive landscape of canals and docks and uh, kind of you know the, the sort of landscapes that are familiar from the paintings of Lowry, who is also from Salford, So the setting is quite important. And you've got Jo, who's a teenage school leaver. She's in the last weeks of secondary school. And she lives with her mother, Helen, who's... They don't get on very well. So they're quite antagonistic and uh, disagreeable with each other. And Jo has a relationship with uh, Jimmy, who is someone she meets initially on the bus and then bumps into again. And he's a black sailor. He's a ship's cook working on one of the big ships that's kind of uh, docked in in the area. And they have this very fleeting, very sweet kind of romance. And they get engaged and they spend one night together and then his ship has to sail. Unfortunately, Jo finds herself pregnant as a result of this, Kind of one night together and um, she decides to start her own life so she uh, gets she's left school she gets a job in a shoe shop and she meets Jeff who is gay who has been chucked out of his previous accommodation and him and Joe kind of set up this this kind of flat share together but also this like improvised family unit as well and that's in contrast with that, the distinct lack of family care that's come from Joe's own, own mother who's got married to Peter, who's a slightly 2nd secondhand car salesman. That's, yeah, and I suppose what happens is this, all these different personalities and the kind of conflicts between them. The big narrative countdown is, to, is through Joe's pregnancy and, and the film ends as she's about to go into labour I think the film strongly suggests. Um, I won't say more than that because that would give away what happens in the end and who ends up living with who but that's a flavour of what it's about.
1: Oh, brilliant! That's that's perfect. Um, one thing that that uh, I, I didn't know as well, and you reveal it in the book, uh, that um, uh, Sheila Delaney's actually in the film at the very beginning as one of the sort of young women behind Joe as she goes as she leaves school.
3: Yes, yes, she makes a cameo appearance in the opening sequence when uh, Joe is playing netball at school and hates playing netball as. Many of us hated playing that board at school, um, and yeah, in the background of the shot, one of the people looking at this uh, match silently looking on is Sheila Delaney. Um He's very kind of, uh, she was very tall, was very statuesque, quite a kind of imposing and, and glamorous figure, um, and I think it's really interesting to have her taking a bow to borrow. A Smiths reference, which you can hardly avoid doing when talking about a taste of because it was obviously very influential upon Morrissey and on the Smiths.
1: But Were you a big we Smiths can, fan? can talk
3: about that more. Yeah. Um, yeah, I, I, I mean that's one of the ways in which lots of people my age or uh, may may like encounter some of these films, and right. because Morrissey was such a kind of big fan and a powerful advocate for them and used their the the dialogue as, as lyrics and use the images from several of these films or the kind of of the writers of them um, for posters and sleeve art and all of that kind of stuff. And obviously we know where Morrissey's ended up ideologically. And mm. I think that was one of the things that I wanted to think about in writing this is there a, has there been a kind of reputational contamination in a way that such a powerful advocate for Delaney and her work has subsequently taken this very kind of right-wing turn. Was, is that a problem? Was, what was it that appealed about this to Morrissey? Can we extricate it from the journey that he's taken? So in, you know, in some ways it's a, a, a kind of sweet northern fable and in other ways we might think about it in in relation to these bigger questions of how old films and nostalgia for the past are are mobilized in the present and you know that's a bit of a hot mess isn't it really in terms of culture wars and the good old days and what that means to some people I mean I
1: would I would push quite vigorously against that idea in the sense that um uh, I don't find the film nostalgic I don't f- I don't feel that the central appeal of the film is nostalgia that you, you, you okay you might want to use uh, you know iconic images as a, a or make images iconic and I definitely understand a lot of people's despair uh, at Morrissey. I think I wasn't as invested in Morrissey as, well, it was a lot of, he, to me he was just a singer and uh, and I've never put much credence in the political views of a singer. I mean, David Bowie was a fascist. I mean, mm. let's, let's not forget that, I mean, Ed, uh, Philip Larkin, I love Philip Larkin, I, um, Ezra Pound, T.S. Eliot, Virginia Woolf. There are lots of...
3: <laughs> There's a lot of it about... <laughs>
1: Paul Newman says in HUD, if you separate the saints from the sinners, you're lucky if you're left with Abraham Lincoln. I think this whole, this culture war idea is, is um, to me, and this might, I, don't, I hope, hopefully doesn't sound too simplistic, but it feels to me like um, we're accepting the right wing's ground of battle you know and i i disagree with its premises so i don't Mm. i don't even see that there needs to be a culture war necessarily would be you know i don't yeah what what Mm. do you think melanie i mean but please please by all means push back
3: (laughs) I, i guess being in a an arts and humanities faculty In a british university at present i don't feel that i can ignore the culture wars because i think you know one of the reasons why this continual kind of media trolling of you know these things not being worthwhile and and being a kind of hotbed of pinko you know that kind of discourse and wokeness and other words that are essentially been, been rendered meaningless i don't feel i can ignore it because I think it has implications for the the context in which we work and we're allowed to work yeah I suppose that's that's what I'd say that yeah I think that the premise of it is entirely false but the waging of the culture wars has real world consequences that are impossible to to ignore but yeah it's a it's a grim time to be trying to make a case for doing things other than subjects that serve employers or uh, you know so it's yeah it was interesting to think about this stuff in the in the context of being in a film and media department in a one of the universities that was designated the the most woke the uk so you feel like you're walking around with a target on your back in some ways
1: no i don't want to i don't in any way mean to sort of belittle or minimize that it's not so much an ignoring of the culture wars as sort of like a strategic i'm not going to fight your battles where i know you're going to ambush me i'm going to fight my battles way beyond that
3: you have to hold on to what you think actually matters and and try and connect with the other people that you know, we're
1: out there and yeah. And, and with um, A Taste of Honey and uh, with what I I, I feel is uh, how fresh this film still feels and that that's what I it, it feels like that is pushing against any sense of nostalgia because nostalgia is ultimately sort of a patronising of the past by the present. It's not sort of like, oh, well, wasn't it all cute? And you you have some great points where you point out like oh look at the hot water bottles underneath the sink there this is a cold you know this is a yeah. cold apartment it's not as 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 much as it might be wonderful as a space where this inclusion is taking place it's also a place that's bloody cold
3: yeah absolutely I think it is a film that sort of pushes back like against any cosy nostalgia I you mean know, you know I was one of the things I quoted was um, Simon Heffer did a sort of editorial talking about the, the television channel Talking Pictures and how this the kinds of old film and television that it showed were not PC, but it provided a, a kind of nostalgic comfort blanket for, for people, um, particularly during lockdown. And I just think that's much too... That's much too simplistic and it sort of minimises the complexity of the, the um, talking pictures. I'm a huge fan of mm. they show wonderful stuff, but also that stuff is complex. It's not just hobbies on bicycles and, you know, the, the kind of British version of the beginning of like Blue Velvet, you know, really waving in slow motion and being happy in their communities. You know, there's, there's often some really dark questioning material being, being dealt with there alongside things that are a bit more cosy it's a real mixture and so to sort of see all of that steamroll and um, by inference suggesting that anyone who's interested in that stuff is just hooked on nostalgia and not because they're interested in this historical material that still speaks so so eloquently I just think is yeah it's it's a it's a simplification and you know with A Taste of Honey you've got these kind of lone mother characters to speak back they refuse to kind of know their place and be thankful they have aspirations of different ways of living and the two sympathetic male characters one's a person of color the other one is queer you know it's it's a a film that at the time was trying to tell different stories and and you know present different kinds of people um, in very sympathetic ways so it's yeah I think it, it, it presents a view of that moment as not entirely fantastic but people are trying their best within that and trying to make a kind of good life for themselves but that's that proves quite difficult because you know there's no there's no interesting jobs to do if you're a female school leaver your options are very limited your mother's options are limited that options of all the people surrounding you are, are, are very limited as well but at the same time there's this kind of impulse to try and do things differently to be artistic to be kind of interested in the world around you to be creative and poetic and, and i think that's one of the lovely things about the film is that comes across so strongly
1: wear italian shoes
3: yeah exactly these sort of groovy espadrilles and like move into this squat with your friend and decorate it and like turn it into this haven I'm obsessed with Joe and Jeff's flat in, uh, in a taste of honey that they do this lovely makeover on and string up all these interesting mobiles and postcards and curtains and and do all this like cooking and Decoration, it's like this little domestic idyll, really mm. This space where things are possible But then it also takes that out onto the streets as well You know, they're a place where you can kind of have adventures And you can declare yourself bloody marvellous Yeah, Walking around under the railway arches And, you know, refuse to be downtrodden uh, you know, yeah. In spite of everything, you can still say You know, we're we're amazing, we're fantastic
1: Absolutely, hit the North <laughs>
3: get,
1: yeah, get some of that spirit, and it's not It's grim up north. It's it's much more. Uh, there's a, there's a triumph to it. I the, I mean the thing that I I really reacted to on my first watching was how much the none of the characters uh, just fell into types or stereotypes or tropes. They were all there was this there was this willingness to have a conversation even uh, between them. That was so. It's not like oh, we're just going to forget race because we've got a, 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 and that'll be the way we'll, we'll not be racist. No, we're going to have a joke about it. We're going to talk about it. We're going to address it because that's exactly what people do. People don't walk around ignoring race as as a as a way of sort of being anti-racist or being non-racist. In fact, in some ways, that sort of liberal attitude of being colorblind, as we've seen, is an extremely weak way of uh, approaching race that, that mm. collapses, you know, that collapses in, in an instant. And similarly with um, Jeff, played by um, Melvin Murray, the uh, who who sadly passed for quite recently. Yeah, but yeah, what
3: wonderful, wonderful performance.
1: Yeah. You quote Dirk Bogart saying to him, you know, you did more for gay visibility in five minutes of that character than I did in the whole of Victim.
3: Yeah, I think that's such an interesting thing, isn't it? Because Victim is a remarkable film and Bogart's performance is amazing in it. And it's a very brave film for him to make as as well as
2: Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now, imagine them getting even softer over time. I'm here to tell you about Bolan Brand Sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% 96% replied that Bolin Branch sheets get softer with every wash. They're made from the rarest organic cotton and designed to get softer over time. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee, plus 15% off your first order with code BUTTERY. So head to boll today. Exclusions apply. See site for details.
0: Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot.
3: Uh, kind of melodrama and it's uh, approaching the, the topic in that way as uh, you know as kind of one of um, it's the engine for powerful drama and confrontation whereas there's an opposite version of that in, in A Taste of Honey I sort of talked about it as he's kind of queer and quotidian like this is every day this isn't big melodramatic revelation, there's a kind of bit of a back and forth between Joe and Jeff about it and she's a bit nasty sometimes and he's quite rightly sort of defensive and sticks up for himself but that's not even necessarily the most significant thing about about Jeff. Um, It's part of him and who he is but it's it's yeah the film takes a different approach to it I suppose and that that character is a fully rounded character there are all kinds of different aspects to his personality and yes some of it is a little bit stereotypical so you know the kind of him being a sort of textile art student and being very adept at running up curtains and doing interior design and buying these kind of Italian shoes and um being good at cooking these are you know within the realm of Stereotyping, but but like all the characters they kind of evade that that straight jacket you know they're all more complicated than the stereotyping would normally have space to allow for so yeah they've all got other things going on haven't they
1: well precisely and i think that sort of goes against any idea that it's a stereotype as well in the sense that stereotype seems to me to be something which is like a silhouette it reduces all detail but i mean stereotypes coincide with reality i mean i've met more openly gay people in the film industry than i've met in Vickers shipyard i'm not saying there aren't more i'm not saying there aren't gay people in Vickers shipyard there certainly are but there's an openness uh there's a there's a a, a, a certain space in the film industry that that doesn't exist in the shipyard and and it's and people tend to go to environments which welcome them rather than ones in which they have to hide and be and find hostility so yeah. you know there are reasons why certain stereotypes or certain sh- shorthands of of how we understand things exist this film doesn't say that's all jeff is You know, it's it's like saying, or there's a point in the book where you mention you you refer to the sort of trope of the unhappy gay character. You know, yeah,
3: it's Richard Dyer's idea of a sad young man as this recurring image of of yeah male gay identity.
1: And and I agree, if that was all that that Jeff was, that would be that would be a legitimate criticism. But being gay in uh, early nineteen sixties. Northern England. There were, I imagine, there were moments where you weren't feeling to, uh, bloody marvelous, even even if, and and that makes the feeling bloody marvelous moments all the more meaningful because they come at a price.
3: Yeah, yeah. There's a sort of defiance, in like I'm still going to stake my claim to be a, a marvelous person, you know. <laughs> uh, and and that moment being both Jeff and Joe together, sort of, you know. Telling each other how wonderful they are, I think, is such a lovely, a lovely, inspiring moment. I sort of think if it was a bit later on, they'd like form a band and become superstars, you know. It's that idea, isn't it, of like the the rest of the world doesn't get how wonderful we are, but we're going to show them. But, you know, what vehicle does that ambition, that marvellousness take? And Well, I mean, that, that's
1: something that, that definitely uh, makes this film stand out away from... Uh, some of the other films that it's often grouped with is is it doesn't strike me as a pessimistic film uh, at all. It strikes me as a film that's very optimistic.
3: Yeah, well, I mean, given the, the situations that are being presented, which could become very kind of dour, grim social realism, it's a very a deliberately very sort of lyrical, also very funny. I think, you know, there's some great hilarious comedy moments really well performed by performers that are very skilled in... So there's great moments between Dora Bryan and Rita Tushingham as mother and daughter. Great moments between Joe and Jeff when they're sort of getting fed up with each other and Joe's fed up with being pregnant and he's fed up with her being fed up. And, you know, really... I mean, I think Delaney's very good at writing that kind of crosstalk, that back and forth. And it's interesting that the original play had elements that were meant to be, like, done in the style of musical comedy acts you know that Helen in particular Joe's mother would sort of address the audience like she's like Max Miller or something Mm. you know and I think some of that leeches into the the film as well I mean Dora Bryan's great performer who's very skilled in variety and review as well as legitimate conventional theatre so she can kind of bring that that style of performance into it so it's, yeah, I think it's got comedy chops as well as, and not all the films of the British New Waver. You know, it's this sporting life for all. It's wonderful qualities. is a really grim film. Uh, Room at the Top doesn't have many laughs, but A Taste of Honey is has got some very funny moments. So.
1: Looking forward as well, like I can see sort of its influence on on the cinema of Ken Loach and the cinema of, you know, especially early Ken Loach when, when maybe he wasn't quite quite as doctrinaire as he would become.
3: And I think more immediately, like Coronation Street, obviously right. the, the, that begins before the film of A Taste of Honey comes out, like that's the following year. But Tony Warren, who originated Coronation Street, is obviously set in the same kind of neighbourhoods. Uh, he'd seen A Taste of Honey and was sort of inspired by it and thought, yeah, I can write something about a kind of local neighbourhood, and some of the character types are, are kind of similar to, to what's going on so i think in a way it's it's the progenitor of a whole set of like, like realist approaches to you know telling stories particularly northern stories i suppose you know you can still see its its legacy i think in that way
1: i remember when eastenders first came out and people were sort of like hmm coronation street in london i'm not sure this <laughs> is going to work <laughs> It's not like we were so used to Coronation Street, even Crossroads and and Emmerdale, that EastEnders was this sort of new soap opera we didn't think would last. That's
3: fine. Yeah, I suppose. Albion market didn't crack it, did it? But, or El Dorado? Or <laughs>
1: exactly, exactly. People forget that there were this stream of, of uh, sort of soapy dramas which which you know didn't didn't last. Yeah. <laughs> or, do you, or do you remember Triangle?
3: <laughs> oh yes,
1: yes. <laughs> genuinely depressing. Yeah,
3: it's kind of littered with all these uh, things that don't work. I mean, uh, Delaney could have written for Coronation Street. She was asked to. Mm. Granada were very. I mean, understandably, you've got this playwright writing stuff that's, you know, very locally based. They were very interested in her writing for them, and she she turned them down. She did do some episodes of Z Cars, so she did do some writing for a kind of different northern realist tradition, but um, but not Coronation Street. But sp- maybe she just thought, okay, well, I've I've provided this formative influence. I don't really want to go back to that. And I think, as well, you know, the success of *A Taste of Honey* when she was still a teenager, and it's a big kind of cause cool celebre. And there's lots of speculation about, you know, how could she have known about such a sordid situation once so young? Um, and is this painting sulphur in a bad light? And so, mm-hmm. lots of the council and the local press really pile onto her. I could see why you just think, oh, I can't be bothered with that anymore you know I don't want to wade into that again she does her follow-up play the line in love is again set in in Salford but yeah I think beyond that and um, moving to to London there's this ambivalence about about the area so you see that in things like the white bus and and Charlie Bubbles and um, which of course is with Albert Finney and it's all about uh, someone who's become been a famous writer going back home and it's a really odd kind of unsettling experience for him and no one quite knows how to treat him and you know he doesn't really feel connected to the place anymore and you know I think there's some really interesting autobiographical stuff going on there about what happens when you are provincial writer who makes it big and what then is your relationship to your hometown and your community and how do they feel about you and how do you feel about them so I think mm-hmm. all of that's To kind of calm afterwards Really In Delaney's career
1: Of course Ken Lodge, I read a few episodes Of Zed Cars as well So there's a, yeah, there is That yeah. connection there That process of, of I thought it was fascinating When you brought up the I'm not sure if it was a politician Or the the editor I think Of one of the Salford newspaper Who sort of really mm-hmm. As you say Piled on And that That seems to me Such an intrinsically Northern thing That, that we can't take pride <laughs> In something That somebody is doing We've got to sort of of, you know, chop them off at the ankles.
3: Yeah, I think even even more so because you know it's a, it's a young woman. How dare she? You know, she should know her place and be thankful. And instead, she you know says when she thinks the council are doing stupid things when they're redeveloping areas and sticking up tower blocks. And you know, yeah, she she speaks out. And they don't like it at all. I think you know there's that sense that she's she's seen as uppity and. Um, and misrepresenting the modern north to these theatergoers and film viewers down south. So she's seen as, you know, a problematic figure in that way. I mean, some of the reviews of the original play, uh, one talk isn't very positive about it, but says, you know, it's the view of a savage society um, from a genuine cannibal. So it's kind of presenting... Salford wow. is like this you know p- primitive society and it's you know mind-blowing and yeah. I think some people in Salford worried that this was presenting stereotypes of northernness for southern delectation, and that's quite a I mean I don't think it is at all but but there's clearly a real sensitivity about how some of these kitchen sink, new wave, angry young man plays and novels are presenting the North. Why, so, you know, it's, in some ways it's seen as great that people are interested, but in other ways, they're like, what, why are they interested? What are they thinking about us? What impression are they getting from these, these stories? So there's an unease there as well.
1: I get that because sometimes I'm watching working class sort of a, a drama set in a working class area or something. The sort of shameless, grungy...
3: Yeah, kind of poverty porn, that, that accusation. Yeah, and it, it, it's not so much
1: that. It's just that sometimes you feel like the person hasn't uh, the person is making a film of somebody else's film of an idea of what working class life looks like it's someone who's what who who's watched other films and thought okay I'll take a bit of this and a bit of that but the problem with the the poverty porn sort of idea is it often becomes an excuse then they not to look at class not to look at people who are from lower class uh so-called lower classes you know my 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 own criticism would sometimes be like for instance you know why do they have to have a dirty door why is that like the immediate <laughs> signifier of of a work? Because I know people who lived in terrace houses, and their doors were the only place that they actually had any control over or pride in. So,
3: mm. well, there's that there's that stereotype, isn't there, of the scrubbing the staff and you know making sure that that you know, all the stuff in Richard Hoggart's the uses of literacy when he's talking about traditional working class northern communities and that sense of domestic pride and civic pride that you know, make sure that your step was clean. Yeah, because if not you're you're seen as not upholding your your role in a way, particularly for for women and their Mm. their sense of responsibility for the respectability of themselves and their their family which of course is again one of the things that's interesting about The Taste of Honey is that characters that are beyond the realms of this respectability you know Helen played by Dora Bryan is not our ma'am the figure that Richard Hoggart talks about the sort of and there's that interesting comparison with with something like Coronation Street where you've got different kinds of women you've got the more traditional mams who are devoted to their families and their homes and then you've got someone like Elsie Tanner who's a mother but she's also still wants to be kind of sexy still you know is single but is you know um, still trying to put up a, a glamorous facade so there's this tension I think within working class femininity between respectability and something that might be seen as a bit iffy but more exciting. Mm. So I think mm. y- you get that dimension as well in, in A Taste of Honey that, you know, Helen as played by Dora Bryan is a kind of, you know, she's still trying to wear the glamorous clothes. She still wants to go dancing with the fiance at the at the dance hall. She still wants this life of excitement. Um, and the film doesn't necessarily really disapprove of being that way, you know.
1: Yeah, sort of, in a way, it sort of mirrors Jo's own ambivalence about being a mother. It's like her, her own mother didn't necessarily want to be a mother. So, yeah. yeah, why should she want to be a mother? Helen wants to be, you know, bloody marvellous as well.
3: Yeah, yeah. She's refused to just become this little shapeless, sexless figure that, that Hoggart talks about, you know, that once you reach a certain age as a working class woman who's who's married and respectable, you rescind those things. And, you know, they're not up for rescinding those things because they're one of the few glimmers of like excitement and, and interest in their lives. And the, and the title of the play and the film gestures towards that, you know, this idea of these little little bits of pleasure that you have to pay for, you know, in very draconian terms um those are the those are the things that make life worth living
1: yeah I mean if it's not pushing it too hard the whole film strikes me as a taste of honey in the in the sort of black and white expanse of of cinema at the at this point time. I mean I got a real feeling reading your book and reading about the reception of it as well. Certain it's it's a bit like watching Bob Dylan in that uh Penbaker documentary going around Britain and and you, he's so far ahead culturally of the moment that he is in and the ability of the people around him to sort of receive it because it's just like he he's he's already in the late 60s and they're still in the 50s mm. um and and it strikes me the same is true of taste of honey you, you've got this this new world being absolutely represented and um invented there and that the the rest of the world is going oh she's a bit ugly <laughs> you know? and that's 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 how they're uh, you know that's how they're welcoming it they just or, or that the playwright is a bit ungrateful as uh you know she should be a little bit more have a little bit more civic pride yeah or
3: well, they try and sort of i mean on the one hand, they're interested because it's something new and something yeah. different, and it's clearly significant in some way, but they try and find ways of domesticating it or making it more fit into the, the conventions. So, yeah, Sheila Delaney's always being asked, you know, are you engaged? You know, are you getting married? Uh, like, that's the most important thing about her in a way. You know, you're just you're just an ordinary girl, aren't you? And she's like, I'm not ordinary. you know she just doesn't she sort of refuses to go along with those those scripts and yeah points to something else that's sort of coming through the pipeline really that she's yeah she's gobby she won't just part with whatever you know nonsense is, is said about her and she thinks that she has the the right to sort of speak and, and be heard and I think that's you know massively impressive oh. she does do this interesting thing of you know in correspondence with Joan little saying oh I've never seen a play before but I've seen one now and now I've written one myself would you mind producing it which is you know fiction she'd seen plays she'd been in school productions and she was very okay with what was going on but clearly thought this is a good tact you know, this will this will fly. So this is mm. how I'm gonna try and get myself noticed and it and it works. You know, I'm gonna she's... invent
1: myself as this sort of savant who just yes. turns up you know
3: from from nowhere I've suddenly, you know. But at the same time, you know, she is coming from out of nowhere. She mm. is, you know, writing this this thing. I mean she clearly that she's part of a whole group of people that you know friendship group lots of creative people and artists and but they're also they are also like ordinary people in in Salford they're her schoolmates and you know people that she knows from the sort of social scene um and they're all doing their own really interesting creative work so it is all going on and I'm you know also thinking about the Beatles and that moment of the sort of late 50s early 60s when you've got lots of things that are fermenting and like and things are gonna become visible and become mainstream and I think it's such a fascinating moment in post-war British history that kind of you know before 62 63 you know that kind of just before the moment where things shift but it's all going on behind the scenes and waiting to happen
1: absolutely love me do it's just uh, you mentioned in the f- your first paragraph it's just uh you know it's just about around that yeah. time
3: yeah and there is that link between you know the what, the the way they present themselves as as a group and, and the image of these films you know there's a there's some really interesting connections there i think you know they in in some ways their early work is like a sort of extension of some of these Ideas
1: and themes, and they sing a taste of honey
3: on their first album. There you go. So it's perfect, you know, perfect
1: link. Just, just final question. Um, In in terms of uh, Sheila Delaney's career, she she goes on to have quite a long career after this, and and with with you know, there's by no means is this a one hit wonder career. Um, But where where would you place sort of taste of honey in her in in that context? as, as as it goes
3: on oh gosh i mean it's it's such a big thing and she's so young when it happens and it's a first play it's very difficult i think for it not to overshadow everything that comes afterwards even though there's lots of really fantastic stuff that comes after i mean the screenplay for uh dance with the stranger the ruth ellis film uh that she does in the 80s is brilliant you know such a good piece of work um later things like charlie bubbles as well and you know she worked on television she worked on radio she you know she did some really interesting stuff but taste of honey is so massive and it's on the school curriculum and and then morrissey is continually quoting from it mm. you know it's very uh, and I think there is also a sense that, that Jeanette Winterson alluded to when she was talking about Sheila Delaney. It's almost like, well, we're only going to let you have one success. You know, we're going to mm. turn you into a nine days wonder or, or a one hit wonder. And that she doesn't get the support beyond that initial success in a way that uh, Winterson talks about Pinter. You know, that it takes him a while to find his place and then he does and then obviously he has the career that he has and that Delaney didn't have the same mentorship I mean maybe she would have if she'd stayed working with Joan Littlewood but that relationship is has its own kind of tensions and difficulties um so she's kind of left to her own devices a little bit and I think that that shapes what happens later on but you know yeah, she's she's a really important voice in that moment and afterwards, and a really important writer who did more than one play.
1: <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, absolutely, absolutely. That's an interesting. I never thought of it in terms of Pinter as a as a as a comparison, but um, just in terms of career and a trajectory of the career. But that's uh, that's an, that's a very interesting point.
3: Well, and, and at the um, you know the the West End premiere of. A Taste of Honey on, on the stage. They just talk about what Sheila is wearing. You know, she's not wearing a jumper anymore. She's wearing a lovely white dress with silver slippers. And, you know, Pinter doesn't get that nonsense. They're not talking about John Osborne's shoes. Um, it's just a completely different approach to women writers that means that, that they're trivialised. They're talked about in different terms. So not a level playing field even for someone as prodigiously obviously talented as delaney they still just want to talk about her hair and her you know what shoe she's wearing
1: it's a brilliant film obviously <laughs> but it's a it was a really great i love these bfi classics they there's such a a wonderful um way of sort of going deep into a film and 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 Getting an opportunity to re- rethink it and relive it, and this this is this is no exception to that.
3: Yeah, this is a thrill to be able to write for that series because it's yeah such a great series, so many great books, so many fantastic writers. So yeah, being able to join that company was a real thrill and an honour.
1: Yeah, yeah. Uh, one final question is: uh, Could you recommend a film book for us? Because we would always like to have a, a, some extra reading on this podcast. Um, any...
3: Oh, my <laughs> oh well, I, I mean, I'll go back to David Shipman's uh, uh, Hollywood Movie Stars book. You know that that kept me company on <laughs> many nights reading that and, uh, and unlocking this whole world of you know the classical hollywood system and all the different films they made and all the different kinds of personalities that appeared in them so yeah i think uh, those shipman's encyclopedias of film stars are just a wonderful read also very nicely illustrated so yeah it's like a deep dive into classic hollywood
1: and you still have them on your shelves
3: I still have them on my shelves. So yeah, um, I eventually bought my own copies rather than getting the ones out of the uh, out of the library over and over again.
1: I love the library, uh, but I was I'm so bad that I've got so many late fees that at one point my local <laughs> librarian just went, "Look, keep it. You've bought it now." <laughs>
3: <laughs> yeah, sort of like. Uh, yeah
1: you bought a share in (laughs) it exactly there's a wing of the barrow library that was paid for by my late late fees i think
3: well it's nice to make a contribution (laughs)
1: exactly my auntie was the uh, children's librarian there so um yeah she was a librarian children's librarian for for cumbria for southern and uh yeah, I remember her. I remember um, Brian Patton coming to the library to do readings oh, of, yeah, of his yeah. poetry and the beat poets, who all of whom mm. I ended up meeting at one point or another. But uh, mm-hmm. that was a really interesting. As a young as a young teenager, meeting Brian Patton was very influential. Listen, Melanie, thank you so much for that. That was really interesting, and um, thank you for being my guest. No, no,
3: thank you for having me.
1: That was uh, myself and Melanie talking about A Taste of Honey, a film that if you haven't already seen, you will want to see now, I'm absolutely sure. Can I just remind everybody that there's a new podcast coming imminently called um, Cinema Italia, which is a new podcast about a journey, a personal journey through Italian cinema, as Martin Scorsese might say. Thanks very much to Elliot Atkins for the music, Ali Howard for the art, and th- thanks to you, listener. I hope you enjoyed it, and I'll see you next week.